Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan Summer in Tel Aviv. From the messaging coming out of Jerusalem, Riyadh, and Washington, D.C., the normalization of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia is only a matter of time. Why is it happening now? What will it mean? Coming up later in the podcast, we'll talk to Haaretz diplomatic correspondent Amir Tibon, who will talk about the development of the deal, the interested parties, and the remaining obstacles to such an event. But first, to discuss the prospect of such a deal from the Saudi perspective, we are lucky to have Dr. Nora Durbal joining us on the podcast. Nora is an expert on Saudi Arabia and the Arabian Peninsula and a postdoctoral fellow at the Martin Buber Society of Fellows at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She's researching Saudi-Palestinian relations around the time of Israel's independence in 1948. Nora, welcome. It's my pleasure to be with you. What went through your mind when you heard the news or have been watching the developing news about an Israel-Saudi normalization? They're saying it's all but a certainty. What's your reaction to it? And what are the initial reactions that you've seen among the Saudi population as you've conducted your research there? When I moved to Jerusalem, I was hoping that I could do a road trip from Jerusalem to Jeddah, where I did my ethnography, my fieldwork. And I'd be really happy if that would be a possibility at some point in the future. Although, you know, I'm not sure if it's going to happen this year, but I think it's just a matter of time. One thing that we have to be really aware of is that when we speak about Saudi Arabia and Saudi society, there is not the one Saudi opinion. Saudi society is like Israeli society. It's very divided. They're very different parts of society, different segments, different in terms of different socioeconomic background, different educational background, different relations to religion. So when we speak of the Saudi, what does the Saudi think? I think it's really important to differentiate. Can you talk a little bit about the different groups, maybe the different generations and the different levels of religiosity of Saudis and how that affects how they would view the idea of peace normalization with Israel? Usually the statistics that they, we see suggest that about 50, if not more, percent of society are less than 35 years of age. So it's a very young society. And I think for the young generation, the whole Israel-Palestine issue is one that is rather abstract. In my view, less politicized and above all proud to be Saudi at this particular point in time. The sense of pride to be Saudi in Saudi Arabia right now is something that often goes unnoticed. And I think it is key to understand how they relate to their leadership. To have a leader, and I'm talking here about the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who's 38 years of age. His father is almost 90, the king. But everyone knows that Mohammed bin Salman is the head of the government and really the visionary behind the changes that we've seen. And I think for many Saudis, especially the younger ones, they are proud to have such a young, energetic and visionary leader. Many of the changes that we've seen have been absolutely radical, affecting all areas of life. Politics, the economy, the day-to-day -day life has just changed drastically. And I'm speaking here from my own observations between 2009, when I started working on Saudi Arabia and doing fieldwork, what it meant to be walking in the streets of Saudi Arabia as a woman, as a student at the time, is something very different from what it is now to be walking in the streets of Saudi Arabia. 
My friend who travels frequently on business told me he was picked up at the airport by a female Uber driver who wasn't wearing a veil. I said, really? In Saudi Arabia? Paint a picture for me when you talk about the difference between the old Saudi Arabia and the new Saudi Arabia and how you think that modernization might relate to the idea of these young people being more open to the idea of normalized relations with Israel or its relationship in general to the Western world. Ten years ago, if you would have arrived to Riyadh as a woman, you would have probably just gone to the hotel and waited for your next meeting. But nowadays, when you arrive to Riyadh, there's so much to do. One of the drastic changes that happened since 2015 was gender segregation. So in the past, public space was segregated into a male-only section and a family section. And as a female, you would only be admitted to the family section. But that was actually where life happened. So actually, the, the real hardship was being a single man in Saudi Arabia. Nowadays, public space is mixed, so it is accessible for everyone. And that includes the workspace. And that has had far-reaching effects on social life, on cultural life. Also, the changes that I've seen happening is that the whole culture, music, art scene shifted from Jeddah to Riyadh. So I think 10 years ago, one of the greatest issues was, what can we do? It's boring. There's nothing to do. And Saudis were famous for going abroad as soon as there was an opportunity. Nowadays, Riyadh is the place where everything is happening. And Saudi Arabia has become attractive, like there are things happening. That is really something that differentiates Saudi Arabia from the Arab region. And I think it's something that many Saudis want to prove to the world, that it is possible for Saudi Arabia to change and to be the best and to break it down to the individual Saudi. I think many Saudis at the moment have the feeling that everything is possible, we can achieve something. And so you think it's a moment where they will follow that leadership even into something like normalization with Israel, even though, as I'm sure your research delves into, they do have a relationship with the Palestinian cause, with the Palestinian community. And you think that this atmosphere of excitement and support for what MBS is doing can maybe overcome the hesitations that Saudis would have vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians if they were to go towards normalization with Israel without Israel making some sort of significant concessions towards Palestinian autonomy or a Palestinian state? I think these are two things. On the one hand, you have these people-to-people, -people, very strong, entangled past and presence where Saudi-Palestinian relations go back 50, 100 years and go back to a time when these national borders were much more porous than they are today. So I think on the one hand, we have to realize that the whole Arabian Peninsula is in many ways entangled through people's movement, through entangled histories, through intermarriages, through stays and exile, and a sense of shared suffering. The whole region is connected. That on the one hand. On the other hand, I see that Young Saudis, but also middle class, upper class, older Saudis, and I'm thinking the generation 40 to 60, they have an interest in living in a prosperous region. And they have an interest in sidelining, quote unquote, sidelining politics for prosperity in the region, for stability and for a good future for their own children. And I think there's the sense of right now, let's look at the economic side of things. Saudi Arabia would benefit from a stable Middle East. 
and from a deal with Israel because there is a lot to learn. I've met Saudis when I started learning Hebrew in 2020. It was the time of COVID. So my initial Hebrew courses were online, taught online. And I was in class with Saudis who were also studying Hebrew because they said it's a matter of time. And if we can speak Hebrew, then we have better access. And these are Saudis interested in design and fashion, IT, the gaming industry, people interested in tourism. And they see that on the political side, there might not be a good solution up at the moment for Palestinians. Most Saudis don't care so much about politics and especially not about Israeli-Palestinian politics. But those who do care, which is a minority, see that Palestinians don't have a political leadership that is worthy, that is capable of creating a Palestinian state for the Palestinian people. I think those Saudis with a sense of politics, they are highly critical of the Palestinian leadership. And they say, if Israelis, Saudis, Palestinians would make a deal, who would be the Palestinian partner to strike a deal with? So, you know, I think most of them prefer a pragmatic deal that centers economic prosperity and stability and peace in the region in the hope that this would give Palestinians in the long run also a better future here in the Middle East. So it sounds like what you're saying is they're saying, why should we hold back on our opportunity for prosperity to join what's going on in the Abraham Accords for the Palestinians when it seems like, you know, to put it bluntly, the Palestinians can't get their political act together. Why do we need to hold back because of that? You know, I think Saudi wouldn't say, have the Palestinians get their act together because they would think the Palestinian people suffer from problematic leadership that is corrupt and incapable and violent and very repressive. I mean, if you speak to Palestinians, the one thing they will complain about after complaining about the Israeli occupation is their own political leadership and how much they suffer from that and the lack of opportunity. When I'm speaking of this great sense of pride that many Saudis feel at the moment, there are those who are highly critical of the current Saudi regime because it's very undemocratic, freedom of speech. The spaces have shrunk over the past couple of years. Any criticism of Vision 2030, criticism of the changes is highly sanctioned. So it is really a time, you know, you either you go with it and you just believe that something positive will come out or you better shut up. And I think this is something where Saudis and Palestinians are kind of in line because they both have these repressive governments, but one is doing better than the other. Saudis watching what has happened in the UAE and Bahrain, their burgeoning relationships with Israel, the tourism, the Israelis who are going to visit the UAE and Bahrain, the business relationships there, have they looking at what's happened in the Abraham Accords positively and making them wanting to join it? Or is this just a question of following their leader, of following MBS into a normalization deal, presuming that he gets support for what will presumably happen? I would say that most Saudis, like, you know, when you think of the younger generation, my feeling is that they do not follow as closely. And having said this, I think we have to be aware that how the Abraham Accords worked for Bahrain and for the United Emirates was very different. I think the mood on the ground in Bahrain and in the Emirates is very different when it comes to Israel. And I think also what we have seen is that when we look at these Gulf states and Gulf Arabs and the Abraham Accords, it is important to bear in mind that now we see many Israelis traveling to the Emirates, but we see very few Gulf Arabs wanting 
to travel to Israel, Palestine. What is happening right now, this impending deal is, I think, way more interesting for Israel than it is for many Saudis. I think for Saudi Arabia right now, there's so many things that are happening. There's so much potential there in their perception that Israel, it is not on their mind and the Palestinians are not on their mind when they wake up in the morning. Also, when you follow Saudi news, the potential deal, while it does get attention, it is not the breaking news right now. This has all been really interesting. Just a final question. Someone who's been living in Israel for the past few years, who's watching what's going on inside Israel in terms of the battles over religion and the battles over women's rights. You've seen how much more repressive Saudi Arabia was and how it's moving towards liberalization. Israel has been a relatively liberal Western society giving women freedom. And now you see Israeli women feeling threatened by increased religiosity in the regime by the government. I wonder, as a woman who's spent a lot of time in both countries, how you see those processes and if you can do a little compare and contrast for me about how women are feeling in Saudi Arabia and how women are feeling in Israel. Sometimes I think these debates about gender segregation that are currently happening, and I'm thinking here of the Zingov Square on Yom Kippur, these were exactly the debates that happened in Saudi Arabia about 10 years ago. So, you know, I think Saudis and Israelis would have so much to share and to discuss together. You know, all these issues about women's appropriate dress on public transportation in Israel. These are exactly the kinds of debates that are happening in Saudi Arabia and have been happening over the past 10 years. I think another similarity between both societies are the different relations that people have towards religion. Religiosity, so many different levels, shapes public lives and shapes the lives of people, but in very different ways. Sometimes I feel Israeli society is really like six or seven societies somewhat put together because in different, you know, secular Israelis have very different understanding of religion than more orthodox and that modern orthodox. They're political, religious and all kinds of versions of religiosity. And the same is true for Saudi Arabia, that there is not this one sense or understanding of religion, but there are these, at least I would say, seven or eight different groups or camps. If you then look at the countryside and the cities, again, you see how these relationships to religion change. So I think this is really something where Israelis and Saudis would have a lot to share and discuss and maybe also to learn from each other. Well, I look forward to the opportunity to sharing that and to learning about Saudi society, presuming this uh, deal goes through. Thank you so much, Nora, Dr. Durbel, for joining us on Haaretz Weekly. It's my pleasure. Fingers crossed for the deal. Coming up next, Amir Tibon on what is going on behind the scenes regarding an Israel-Saudi normalization deal. Amir Tibon, diplomatic correspondent for Haaretz, former Washington correspondent for Haaretz, and most importantly, former host of Haaretz Weekly in your distant past. Thanks for coming back and joining us. Hi, Alison. It's so much fun to be here again. It feels like about a million years ago in Israel news cycle time, but it was in fact just two weeks ago that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu traveled to the UN General Assembly and met with President Joe Biden. You were there. It was around that time I felt like the message that a deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia for the normalization of relations for a peace deal, in fact, is around the corner, really started to resonate. That's when the signals started to go out. Is that the feeling that you got as well on the ground? Absolutely, Alison, because up until the meeting between Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Biden, 
we knew for sure that Prime Minister Netanyahu wants this agreement. Obviously, it will be the only thing that can dig him out of the political grave that he has created for himself with this horrendous coalition that he's put together. We knew that Mohammed ben Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, wants this deal because it will be a huge PR achievement for him. And perhaps the only way that he can change his reputation in Washington, D.C. Today, when you talk about Mohammed ben Salman in Washington, D.C., the first thing that comes to mind, oh, that's the Saudi guy who murdered a journalist in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul a few years ago, Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist. He wants to be associated with something different. And I think this agreement with Israel is his best shot. But we didn't know until the meeting two weeks ago if President Joe Biden wants it. We didn't know if he wants this agreement as much as Netanyahu and MBS are interested in it. And I think after the meeting with Netanyahu and some of the subsequent things that came out in the media, we can say now with more certainty than before that President Joe Biden wants this agreement, that he's committed to it, he wants to see it happen. That still doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen. There are still huge obstacles. We can discuss them in a minute. But we know that the president is personally committed to it. And that's a big development compared to where we stood just a few weeks ago when there was this uncertainty about Biden's commitment and intentions. So let's start with what a deal, if it happens, will look like, and then we'll go into why and these obstacles that you speak of. What kind of a deal, should it happen, are we expecting? Do we know basically what it's going to look like and what each party will get out of it? This is first and foremost a Saudi-American deal. There's an important Israeli component to it, and there may also be an important Palestinian component to it. But first and foremost, it's an agreement between the United States and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which is meant to put the relationship between the two countries on an improved track, let's put it that way, after some tensions in the first years of Biden's presidency. It's an agreement that for Mohammed ben Salman comes with several important achievements. First of all, he wants a lot of American weapons to bolster Saudi Arabia's defense capabilities. On top of that, he wants a civilian nuclear program with uranium enrichment on Saudi Arabia's soil, which is a very difficult request because it comes with a lot of concerns from experts that at some point this program could become from a civilian program to a military program and uh, open up a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. But he definitely wants you know, the starting point of the civilian nuclear program. And he wants a defense agreement with the United States that will basically cause the United States to come to Saudi Arabia's defense in any situation where it's under attack. Of course, the main country that he's looking at when he wants this agreement is Iran. He's afraid of an Iranian attack on Saudi Arabia. And we all remember that just a few years ago, Indeed, there was an Iranian attack on Saudi Arabia, and Donald Trump, who was president at the time, did nothing, did not come to Saudi Arabia's defense. That was a trauma for the Saudis because they thought they had Trump in their pocket. They thought that Trump and Jared Kushner will do anything for Saudi Arabia. And as it turned out, Trump, because he did not want to commit to any kind of new military involvement in the Middle East, just stood by. So first and foremost, this is a Saudi-American agreement. What do the Americans get in this agreement? Exactly. For President Biden, I think one of the main issues on the table here is Saudi Arabia's oil production. Going into the election year in the United States, Biden wants to bring down oil prices in the United States. 
He also, I think, wants to create a better energy market for Europe that is paying the price for its boycott of Russia due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And if the Saudis decide to go along with Biden and uh, start drilling more heavily, that could help him, both internally in the domestic political scene and globally when he looks at Europe. I have to say, though, and this is something our colleague Alon Pincas has written, and I totally agree with, Mohammed Ben Salman's track record when it comes to requests from the United States regarding oil production is very bad. Biden has been burned by him twice already. You know, the last time was after President Biden visited Saudi Arabia just over a year ago. If you remember, Alison, he was here in Israel. And right. then from Israel, he flew to Saudi Arabia. And they discussed the idea of the Saudis helping lower the oil prices. And what Mohammed bin Salman did was the exact opposite. He turned his back on President Biden and he cut a deal with Vladimir Putin that hurt American interests. So there's a lot of suspicion still on the American side regarding the question of whether or not Ben Salman can deliver on this question. I think apart from that, which is the main motivation, there are two smaller motivations here for Biden, but they're also big, okay? They're, they're smaller compared to the oil prices, but they're large to their own standing. One of them is the idea of pushing Saudi Arabia away from China's influence. Mohammed Ben Salman has played the China card against the United States in the last few months, giving all kinds of signals that he's moving closer to Beijing, One of the prime examples was the agreement that Saudi Arabia signed with Iran a few months ago with Chinese mediation. It was understood as a signal to Washington, if you guys don't accept my demands, I'll go and find another sponsor. And it will be your most important rival in the world today, the Chinese. So moving Saudi Arabia away from the Chinese orbit of influence. And again, I'm hearing some people in Washington who are skeptical about that, who believe that Mohammed bin Salman will not actually lower his commitment or ties to China for President Biden. That he will take what he can get out of the deal, and then, you know, once he's secured the arms deals and the defense pact, will still go and sign all kinds of new deals with China. But that's a motivation. And the third issue, I think when President Biden faces off next year, apparently, against former President Trump, assuming these two will be the nominees again. Really, Donald Trump has only one real achievement he can mention in his four years as president. I mean, that's a presidency that ended with the COVID pandemic spreading all over the world because Trump's genius idea of injecting Clorox <laughs> into our body was never tried by the scientists who are hostile to President Trump in Republican science, and the American economy in shambles. January 6th. The list just goes on and on. I think the one achievement that Donald Trump actually had as president were the Abraham Accords, these agreements between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain that were signed in the last months of his presidency. And if Biden can have a diplomatic achievement that is bigger than the only achievement Trump ever had as president, which is, you know, bringing peace with Saudi Arabia is obviously a bigger deal than an agreement with Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates, two countries that together have a smaller population than New York City, basically, compared to Saudi Arabia, which is a real country with a huge population and great influence in the Arab world. So Biden can show that even in the one arena where Trump had something to show, he did something bigger and better. 
Trump, Trump. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. So those are the American and the Saudi motivations. Obviously for Netanyahu, I think, and for Israel here, this would be a major breakthrough relationship with uh, one of the most important countries in the Arab and Muslim world. Saudi Arabia will be followed by other Muslim countries that I believe will then normalize relations with Israel. It's important to say, Ellison, I don't feel comfortable calling this a peace agreement because we have not ever been at war with Saudi Arabia. But normalization with Saudi Arabia is huge enough by itself right. in terms of the economic potential that will be unleashed, taking the existing intelligence and defense cooperation and moving it to a higher level once you have a more open relationship, cultural cooperation, and just the symbolic virtue of having the country that is the custodian of the two holiest mosques in the Muslim world. cooperating openly with the Jewish state. I understand why all of that is a huge achievement in the eyes of the politicians involved. And yet the risks and the obstacles remain, and they're also significant. Does it seem to you that Biden and MBS want this to happen so badly that it's in their interest to offer Netanyahu a deal that will allow him to keep the extreme risk? right wing in his coalition, since it doesn't seem like any of the other parties are going to step in and save him so that he can make a Saudi deal. And I want to connect this to something you wrote, which was basically Christmas is coming early for Netanyahu. Biden has already handed him the visa waiver program recently, which will allow Israelis to enter the United States without a visa, which is a huge win for Netanyahu. And then potentially this Saudi normalization deal. Supposedly, Biden and Netanyahu are on the outs. He hasn't gotten the invitation to the White House. He's unhappy about this right-wing government and their stand toward the Palestinians. He is presumably unhappy about the betrayal of democratic principles with this judicial revolution. Do you think that they will go easy on Netanyahu regarding the Palestinians in this deal in order to make the deal happen without breaking up Netanyahu's government? I cannot predict the future, obviously. But I think that when we talk about the Palestinian component of the agreement, and we're putting out Amos Sar'el, and I are putting out a story about this on Haaretz, there is right now disagreement between the Israeli and the American side in how they interpret the Saudi position on the Palestinians. What the American administration is saying is that the Palestinian issue has to be part of the agreement, and it cannot just be something like The Saudis will give the Palestinians five billion dollars and they'll shut up. And the explanation that the administration is providing goes like this. I'm going to paraphrase some conversations I've had over the course of time with American officials. What they're saying is Muhammad Ben Salman is not just the leader of Saudi Arabia. He has an aspiration to be the leader of the Arab world, the leader of the Sunni Muslim world. And he cannot achieve that if he signs an agreement with Israel. And the Palestinians are against it, and the Jordanians are against it. And the Algeria and Tunisia and other countries with a more traditional pro-Palestinian stance come out against it. And Iran is hammering him day and night for betraying the Palestinians. And parties that are loyal to Iran in different Arab countries use this in propaganda against him. The Americans are saying this does not serve his bigger purpose of positioning himself. As the de facto leader of the Arab Muslim world. He needs this agreement to be much more of a consensus. He needs to show that there's also something for the Palestinians in it and that he did not betray the legacy of his father and the previous Saudi leaders on Palestine. The Israelis are saying none of that is true. And when I say Israelis, I mean the Netanyahu government because right. there are also different voices in Israel about this question. But what Netanyahu and people close to him are saying is, 
Muhammad bin Salman and Saudis in general don't care about the Palestinian issue. They will go along with the bare minimum, just give the Palestinians some money and it will be okay. And the demands on the Palestinian issue are actually a reflection of Biden's political needs in Washington, because this agreement, if it is signed, will require ratification by the U.S. Senate. And that means a two-thirds majority in the Senate, 67 votes. The Democrats today have 51 seats. So assuming that Netanyahu and AIPAC and the evangelical Israeli lobby can get, let's say, 20 Republicans to support this, which will not be easy in an election year to give such a big achievement to President Biden. But let's say we find the 20 Republicans who support it. I can, you know, run the math in my head and think of at least 10 who very easily will support it and maybe another 10 who will be dragged along. But then you're still going to need almost 50 Democratic senators to support it. And you can do the math the other way around, Ellison, and think who are the Democrats that will have a problem voting for this if it completely screws the Palestinians and they just get nothing out of it. And we've already heard several senators who come out and say an agreement with Israel and Saudi Arabia that will require such huge concessions from the United States toward the Saudis, right? Defense Pact and uranium enrichment. And of course, will also be a huge boon to Netanyahu and strengthen his extremist government that the Democratic Party doesn't like. An agreement like that must then also include something on the Palestinian issue. So the Israeli version is because this is what Biden is hearing from his own party, the administration is masquerading it as a Saudi demand. I have to tell you, I have not yet discovered the answer to this question. Who's right, the Israelis or the Americans? Who is a better interpreter of the Saudis? And it's also very possible that each of the two sides hears what it wants from the Saudis. During the UN General Assembly week, when Netanyahu was in the US, on the one hand, Mohammed bin Salman gave an interview on Fox News and basically said, we need to make the Palestinians' lives easier, which sounds a lot more like the Netanyahu and Der- Ron Dermer, his Very most confident, so, yeah. you know, their argument. Yeah, we'll give them some money, we'll make their life easier. By the way, it will also make my life easier if I got a lot of money. I mean, this is, you know, a very weird way to put it. And you reported that Bibi is trying to convince Qatar to make Gaza's life easier yeah, by giving it's all, them... it's the same method, you know, yeah. give them money and they'll be quiet. On the other hand, the Saudi foreign minister led an event on the UN General Assembly sidelines of countries in support of the two-state solution and gave an impassioned speech about the importance of working toward a Palestinian state. And after the whole drama at the UN was over, the Saudis sent their special envoy to the Palestinians, which they had recently appointed, for a first-ever visit to Ramallah, during which, again, he emphasized the Saudi commitment to a Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital. So obviously there are mixed signals here. And it will take time until we understand who gets the Saudis better the Biden administration or the Netanyahu government. So do you believe there's a tightrope there, a deal that can include enough for the Palestinians to satisfy the Saudis and little enough for the Palestinians to keep Netanyahu's government together? When there is eventually a deal, and assuming that it includes something significant for the Palestinians, we're not talking here about a Palestinian state or a massive evacuation of Israeli settlements in the occupied territories, but we may be talking about some kind of a settlement freeze. We may be talking about transferring some territory that is today not populated by settlers from Israeli control to Palestinian authority control. This is for those who are more 
Uh, into the details, we're talking about uh, Area C of the West Bank, transferring some of that territory and marking it as Area B or A, which is under direct Palestinian control. We may be talking about some verbal Israeli commitment to the Saudi peace initiative from 2002 that re- mentions a Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital. And we obviously will uh, see some past Israeli commitments that have been unfulfilled toward the Palestinians having to become reality now. Like what Israel committed to in the Aqaba summit that was held earlier this year. If that is on the table, I can see Netanyahu bringing his extremist Arab-hating coalition partners into the room and telling them, this is our one shot at redemption. Our government has been a disaster. Okay, and by the time, you know, this agreement is on the table, the government will be in office for more than a year and it will have very little achievements to show. The judicial overhaul has been like a volcano erupting, tearing apart the country, awakening the opposition, rallying the liberal forces against the government. This government is losing support in all public opinion polling and losing badly. The economy is not in a good situation. Inflation is rising. Interest rates are going up. People are unhappy. There's a lot of unpopular religious legislation that is being pushed by the ultra-Orthodox parties. Murder rates are spiking. And so Netanyahu will tell these guys, you know, Itamar Ben-Gvir, the national security minister, and Bezalel Smotrich, the finance minister, this is our one shot to make things better, to turn around the fortunes of our government. We sign this agreement, a lot of Saudi and Gulf money comes into Israel, the economy suddenly does much better, the public suddenly supports us, we can say, look, we're not extremists, we're not crazy, we just brought you peace with the most important country in the Arab world, the American administration is with us, we did not destroy the relationship with America like the opposition said, but in order to be able to say this, you guys have to be pragmatic. You guys have to accept this agreement with all the things in it that you don't like. I know for a fact, Alison, this is what Netanyahu will tell them. I cannot predict the future and tell you if they will accept it. That is, you know, too many different considerations that are involved here. This is the pitch he will try to make to them. So I want to wrap up with the other side of the coin. What progressive to center to, you know, small L liberal Israelis, the hundreds of thousands to millions who have been in the streets fighting this judicial overhaul. On one hand, everyone wants normalization with Saudi Arabia. Everyone wants to feel safer and more secure in the Arab world. On the other hand, a big ceremony on the White House lawn with all the bells and whistles. Netanyahu is a hero. This doesn't bode well for keeping up the pressure against this judicial revolution. This will put the wind at his back politically and give him more support if he decides to proceed with uh, transforming Israeli government and harming Israeli democracy. So how does the country feel about that? I think a lot of Israelis will be happy about peace or, again, normalization with Saudi Arabia. But at the same time, I don't think this will change people's minds on what the government is trying to do internally. It will bolster Netanyahu and strengthen the government. And obviously, in the polls, they will go up for a while. But I think if they continue down the road with the judicial overhaul and with the extremist religious legislation, people will say, we wanted peace with Saudi Arabia. We didn't want to become Saudi Arabia. (laughs) And this is not just going to go away. I also think that, you know, when the Abraham Accords were signed, uh, that was in September 2020, During the signing ceremony, Hamas shot missiles from Gaza into Israel, if you remember. And less than a year later, we had Operation Guardian of the Walls, 
which was just an, a full-blown war with Hamas for almost two weeks. You know, people were killed, including a relative of mine. There was major violence inside, you know, mixed cities in Israel, rockets fired from Lebanon. And by the way, in the election that came half a year after the Abraham Accords, Netanyahu lost power. You know, this was supposedly the biggest diplomatic achievement of his career. And half a year later, because of the economic situation, because of COVID, because of corruption and fatigue and other issues, Israeli voters showed him the door. He later made a comeback. We know where we are. But the point I'm trying to make is this will be a huge achievement for him and it will stabilize the government for a while, assuming he can convince his extremist partners to go along with it, which is a huge assumption. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's necessarily what is going to happen. But it's not going to change all the other factors that exist today in Israel, the tension between the liberal-minded, democratic Israelis and people who want this place to become theocracy, you know, the tensions socially within the country, and of course the Palestinian issue. If it is not part of the agreement, if the Palestinians get nothing, then we will see the next round of violence, just like we saw in 2021, less than a year after the Abraham Accords, that eruption with Gaza that spread into the entire country. Amir, as always, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Don't be a stranger. Always fun to come back to Arts Weekly. Thanks, Alison, and thanks to all of our listeners. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guests, to my producer, Dan Brumer, and to my editor, Maya Ben-Nissan. I'm Alison Kaplan-Sommer, and until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. Thank you.